carelessness in the Christian life can be a very devastating thing to the Christian because the Christian has an enemy who is never careless. The Christian has an adversary who never rests, who is to be found in every place and in every activity in which we engage. We might think that if we would go to the sanctuary there with the people of God to worship the God that he would not be there. And yet we read in Ezekiel that Satan had brought his religion and his workers and his worshipers into the very temple itself at Jerusalem. And there they turned their back to God's temple to worship a false god. We might think that if we would go to the family circle of those all of whom shared their Christian faith within that family circle, that we would not find him there. And yet we know that our greatest temptations and the most difficulty we have in being consistently Christian and truly Christ-like is to be that way in the family circle. And so he is there too. And when explorers break new grounds and they go to places where civilization has never been before, and there they see human life as it has not been corrupted by civilization and by what man calls progress in wisdom. They find there the same animalistic worship and satanic formulas and worship the same gods that the ancients did, which brought the judgment of God on his people many times. Wherever we are, there he will be. Whatever we do, there he will take a part. I remember one day as I stood in a bookstore and picked up a copy of a document called the Satanic Bible. And there, not far inside the front cover, was their answer, the Satan worshiper's answer to the Ten Commandments. It is called the Nine Satanic Statements. And I read them and they were as you would expect them to be, that pleasure is the only uh, true thing to be sought in life and so forth and so on. And I got to one of the statements that stopped me dead where I was reading as I thought of it. And there in the Satanic Bible was this statement in their creed of faith. Satan is the best friend the church has ever had and has kept her in business all of these years. I recall reading recently where one man said the great tragedy of American Christianity today is that Satan has stopped fighting the church and started joining it. We need to be aware that he is at every place we are, involved in everything we are involved in, trying in every way that he can to dilute the Word of God, and wherever we find Him in the church or the family or society, wherever we find Him, His hand is involved in diluting the Word of God and His hand is involved in every attempt, no matter what it is, to water down the Word of God and substitute anything man-made in its place. I remind you that Paul says what the world calls its highest wisdom, God calls the babbling of fools. And what satisfies human logic will very seldom meet the standards of God's word. 
And I would remind you that God has charged us specifically at no point and at no time to do anything by popular opinion. For we of all people on the earth must be more concerned with what pleases God than we are with what pleases people. It is not people we answer to. It is not society we answer to. It is not people on whom God's work will rise or fall. Rather, Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Peter's fear as he closes this letter is a very simple fear. He is afraid that God's people through seeking human solutions by human wisdom to their problems will open themselves defenseless for the merciless attacks of the enemy. In this, in this passage, Peter tells us of the victory that can be the experience of every Christian as that Christian submits himself or herself to God and to the shepherds he has appointed to lead and to protect as his work is accomplished. When we do this, Peter says God will go to war for us in our behalf and he himself as we then in his power resist Satan will ensure that victory will be our experience in every part of our lives. In verses 8 and 9 of 1 Peter 5, we see the matter of conflict. Conflict is the price of victory. You know, I suppose like many Christians, I spent a, a number of years wanting to be victorious but not wanting to be involved in any battles. You know, I started thinking one day, what does victory mean? Is there any victory if there is no battle? Victorious over what? What did you win? i tell you how to stay undefeated, fellas. Our guys opened up strong against Clinton. Just don't play any more games. You'll be undefeated. But that doesn't mean anything. You see, victory is meaningless unless there's a battle to start with. Conflict is the price of victory. He says, be of sober spirit and be on the alert. And this is a very vivid uh, Greek uh, sentence, this short sentence here, what it really says literally is be calm and collected having been aroused from sleep. This presupposes that number one, perhaps during their struggles, the people to whom Peter writes have been nervous and upset and they haven't really been leaning on the Lord. So he says be calm and collected. Then he says, be alert. This presupposes when he says you've been aroused from sleep, that they've been asleep and that the enemy's been sneaking up on them. And why are we to do this? Because we have an enemy who prowls around opportunistically looking for every chance to bring us down. This word prowls is in the uh, present tense of continuous action. It means that as a way of life without ever resting, without ever stopping, the enemy of God is on the move looking for some way to hurt God's people. This phrase, this word to devour literally means to drink down. 
And I discovered in my studies that often it was used in ancient Greek literature to refer to what would happen when a barbarian warrior would drink the blood of his slain enemy. You know, the devil wants us to think there is no devil or that he's rather benign. You know who the devil is. He's the guy whispering in the ears of all the folks gullible enough to believe it. There is no devil. He wants us to believe that or that he's not really that big a problem. He would love for us to see him as a little man in a red suit with a pitchfork, for we never see him that way, and that encourages us to forget about him. But Peter tells us that the devil has one purpose. Now get a handle on this. I hope it scares you to death. It ought to. The devil has one purpose. He works at that purpose when you sleep. He works at that purpose when you worship. He works at that purpose all day, every day, and all night, every night. And that purpose is to destroy your effectiveness as a Christian. He never rests. And he has us exactly where he wants us when we get at ease thinking that conflict is over, that battle is past, and that victory has finally been won in our lives. The devil will always be there to encourage us to dishonor God. Esau, not a very spiritual man in the first place, a man subject to the flesh and its desires came in from hunting one day and he was hungry under the point of fainting and he wanted something to eat. And his brother Jacob almost laughingly said, sell me your birthright and I'll give you something to eat. And there Esau, because of the hunger of his belly, sold his most precious possession. Remember Noah, Noah who for 120 years preached righteousness in God's name, preparing 300 miles inland, the biggest boat that the world had ever seen. Noah who stood firm, who obeyed God's command down to the last detail, who was preserved through the waters of the flood. And then finally when Noah gets off of that boat, and the vineyards have produced grapes and new wine has been made. Noah says, I'm due a celebration. And there, yielding to carnal temptation, he becomes drunk and is disgraced before his family after his great victory. See Jonah, the prophet of God, sent to Nineveh to preach to that great capital city of an empire that they might repent. And when Jonah decides that he does not want to do what God tells him to do, the devil will see to it that for every Jonah there will always be a boat to take him in the opposite direction. Consider the matter of Peter, who has sworn only hours before to follow his master even unto death, who has gone with him through the experience of Gethsemane, who at the betrayal in the face of an armed guard drew his sword to fight for Jesus. 
now listening to the questionings and the doubts sown by the devil and wilting and denying Christ in the face of a little servant girl. Wherever we are, whatever we are involved in, he will be there. And when you begin to stir yourself toward God and be sensitive to God and when you start to obey God, then the devil will redouble his efforts. And even as you stand and resist him and he flees from you in the moment of victory, he is at that moment laying plans to come back and catch you unaware and destroy your effectiveness for God. He never rests. And properly understood, conflict is always the price of the victorious Christian life. Remember that Satan can appear in good things according to human wisdom. In Ezekiel and again in Isaiah, he is called the day star, the sun of the morning. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that his appearance is that of an angel of light. But you know, there's one thing that Satan can never do. And that is Satan can never properly use and encourage right living according to God's Word. And folks, when we find ourselves according to the principles of human logic trying to do good things that go against God's Word. Make no mistake about it. The motivating force behind what we do, though we do not understand it, is Lucifer, the day star, the sun of the morning, the angel of light, Satan, the enemy of God. God is bright enough that he has covered all of the options. He has given us principles to deal with everything we face in life. The book is not a situation case book, this Bible of ours. It is rather a book of principles that may be applied to any situation. And wherever dilution of the word is encouraged, it is by the hand of Satan. And we must remember that conflict and combat and warfare and battle are the lot of every Christian. And that victorious, effective Christian living can be had nowhere else but in victory over him in combat. When man sinned, justice got on the devil's side. It became the devil's purpose when he rebelled against God and lost that rebellion to destroy the work of God and the people of God. And when man sinned there in the garden and sin fell to be the lot and experience of every human being, justice got on the devil's side. All he had to do was keep telling God, you've got to be just, you've got to be just. And he could succeed. But through the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, justice was satisfied. The price was paid. And God made a way for every man and woman and boy and girl in the world who would to be reconciled to God for their sins to be washed clean in the blood of the Lamb and for victory to be their experience. Now in verse 9, he says, resist him, firm in your faith with the knowledge that your lot is the same lot of suffering that belongs to every 
true believer. Notice that the successful resistance commanded in verse 9 presumes and presupposes obedience to the principles he has set down in verses 1 to 8. Those principles of submission and voluntary subjection to authority, of leaning on God by accepting His way and obeying His word and doing as He says. Then there may be successful resistance of the devil. Now in verse 5 of 1 Peter 5, he quotes Proverbs 3.34, which says, God gives grace to the humble but resists the proud. In the book of James, the half-brother of our Lord quotes that same passage of Scripture as he says something that sounds very much like what Peter says here. James 4, verses 6 and 7 say this, But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 7, Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. All of our resistance and all of the power of our flesh against the devil is like straw in the wind unless we resist him having already submitted ourselves in obedience to God. James would say that we ought to take heart because the suffering that we endure is the lot of every Christian. It is not unique. The devil over and again tries to discourage us. I counsel with people time and time again who are experiencing defeat in their lives, who are doing things they, they know are wrong, who have a problem with an unclean mind, who cannot keep the thought life clean, and always they seem to feel nobody else has this. Nobody else has it. I remind you how Paul wrote, there has no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted. Beyond that, you are able to cope, but will, with the temptation, make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. And here Peter says, our suffering is common to every true believer. Just another word here, Satan is described as a roaring lion prowling about. I have read that when lions are young and very strong, when their claws are sharp and their teeth are hard, they hunt very silently, stalking their prey until surprise is on their side, and then they bolt from cover and kill the prey. But when lions become old and their teeth begin to rot and they slow down a little bit and their claws are dull and broken, then they begin to roar as they prowl, hoping to frighten their prey so that it may be more easily caught and devoured. And the picture of the roaring lion applying it to Satan is the picture of an old and decrepit foe. Oh, we are no match for him, but we partake of a victory that belongs to Christ a victory so complete that the only chance Satan has of attacking us successfully is by fear, is by frightening us. I would remind you how the scriptures say 
He who fears is not mature in love, for perfect love casts out fear. Conflict is the price of victory, but when in submission to God we go into battle, the enemy has no power over us. And then notice in verses 10 and 11, consistency. Consistency is the practice of victory. Peter here contrasts the suffering that we have to endure to the grace of God. For he says, after you have suffered just a little, God will step in and he himself will confirm and establish you and strengthen you and make you whole and mature in the battle that you have to engage in. Notice in verse 10, he calls God the God of all grace. Peter begins this letter and finishes it with grace, with the idea that all we have and are and ever can be is a free gift of God, though we do not deserve it. He besprinkles the middle of the book with grace. And here he calls him the God of all grace. For everything that we have and can be is his and is his gift, and we can deserve none of it. What do you need? Do you need sunshine or rain or dew or the warmth of the fire? All of that is grace. Do you need illumination, comfort, strength? Do you need grace for living the life or for dying the death of the child of God? All of it is his gift abounding, overflowing, saving, sustaining, convicting, blessed grace. For truly he is the God of all grace. Peter says because he is the God of all grace and because he has called us unto or into the glory that belongs to him, he himself will build consistency into our lives. Paul wrote at one point, I am persuaded that he who has begun in you a good work will perform it unto the coming of the Lord. And here Peter says what he will do for us. He says he will perfect us. Now the word perfect is not the normal Greek word for make complete or make whole or to make perfect. It is rather a word that is used in the Gospels to describe the mending of the fisherman's net. It is as though this word means whatever is torn out of your life, God will replace it. Whatever you lack, wherever the holes are in your effectiveness, God will provide whatever is needed. God will mend it. This word is also used in Greek literature for what a physician did when he set a broken bone. To take that which is broken or torn and to put it back together perfectly. Peter says that's what he will do for us. And then he says he will confirm us. This word confirm means to make permanent or to render immovable, no matter what might come, it cannot be moved. Then he says God will strengthen us. 
And then he says he will establish us. And the word establish is the word used in the Greek for the laying of a foundation down against the bedrock where it will surely stay forever. He himself will do this. Verse 11, the consistency is from him because the might or the force, it is the Greek word for raw power. The might and the force belongs to him. And it says to him, be might and force. It is his exclusive possession. He owns it and he alone can give us the consistency which is the practice of victorious living. And then in verses 12 to 14, I have said here that companionship is the peace of victory. Notice all of the things he mentions. He mentions Silvanus or Silas and Mark. Now who were they? Silvanus is one of those men without whom the church could never have done its work through the centuries of its history. For Silas was a man who was content to stand by the side of Paul. He was content to be overshadowed by Paul. And now in later years we find him content to be the scribe to write down the words of Peter. And though Silas never attained to preeminence, he was content to be behind the scenes. He was content to be faithful and overshadowed by other men if through his faithfulness God could be served. He mentions John Mark. John Mark who left with Paul on a missionary journey. And when they came to the sea and home would be far behind, young John Mark became very homesick and he turned around and he went home. But he repented. And though Paul was angry with John Mark and felt he was no good to him, we read Peter writing, Paul rather writing in later years, and he said, when you come to me, bring Mark, for I need his help. And John Mark is a wonderful study we'll probably make sometime, but he is proof that it is not our ability or our success that matters, but only our willingness to admit our mistakes, to repent before God, and to let God point us again in the direction He wants us to go. Silas and Mark were companions with them in their sufferings. And then Peter says in verse 12, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying. The word exhort is the same root word for the word Holy Spirit. Uh, it is parakalon. It means to speak from beside of someone. Peter is not talking to these Christians and patting them on the back and say, now y'all go out there in the battle and be good and I'm back here and I'm safe and I don't have anything to worry about. Rather, Peter is beside them. He is with them. He is part and parcel of their experience. And he speaks to them from alongside as one who shares their fate. He exhorts and he testifies. The word testify is the word witness, the word martus, from which we get the English word martyr. And so Peter and Silas and Mark are companions with these people in their suffering. And he says here, stand firm. 
because I know from personal experience that the God of all grace will meet all of your needs. There is much discussion among commentators what this word Babylon means, whether it refers to Babylon in Egypt or Babylon in Chaldea or Mesopotamia or, or, or whether it is a used to refer to Rome. I do not believe there's any justification to consider it any symbol. Rather, at the day of Pentecost, we are told that there was a great multitude of Jews from Mesopotamia, and Babylon was the capital of Mesopotamia. And it was at Pentecost that the gospel was heard and that Peter had such tremendous success among those Jews. And so as an apostle to the Jews, it is quite natural that Peter might well have been in Babylon of Mesopotamia writing this letter to other Christians. Here again in verse 14 is commanded sincere love. Peter has commanded us to love one another fervently. He has told us that love covers a multitude of sins. And he, have told, he has told us that if we love, then it will be fervent and it will be forgiving, else it is hatred and not love. And now he says again, when you greet one another, confirm your sincere love for each other. What is the message of this passage? It is that victory is ours. Peace is ours. Is there a threat? Is there death? Is there violence? Is there conflict? Christ whispers peace to us, his blood-bought flock, for he has vanished the enemy. He has defeated him. He has made an end to the war and his victory is ours as we obey him and submit to his word. Victory is not some extraordinary experience. It is rather the proper possession of every Christian, and it can be ours. We can have consistency. It's practice. We can have companionship of others, the peace that comes with victory, but we shall not have them without the conflict, which is the price of that victory. May we pray. Father in heaven, I thank you that you have not seen fit to give us an empty and hollow existence devoid of victory, but rather through the battle in which we are engaged as your people. Victory can be ours in every experience as we decide that we will not rely on human wisdom, that we will not substitute anything man-made or logical or reasonable for the Word of God, that we will found everything that we start, that we will stand in everything that we do on your Word. And when we have so done, victory is our experience. Father, you know the struggles that every worshiper here has today. You know that there are some who have come to worship, but they cannot, for they have not given themselves to Christ. I pray that today they'll be saved. I pray that you will tell every Christian what you would have them do, that we might open our hearts and respond so that we may truly have worshiped this day. Minister to our needs. Touch us where it hurts. 
Father, show us and take from us anything that dishonors you. Use us in the conflicts of life to the glory of Jesus. I pray in his name. Amen. We're going to stand to sing right now hymn 191. I have decided to follow Jesus. Whatever God would have you do today, if you need to be saved, if you need to join the church, if you need to kneel and pray in submission to Christ as Lord of your life, what he would have you do, do it right now.